Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 19, 2019. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 17th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,916, that's 12916. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,918, that's 12918. This morning, A Vision for You presents the definition of powerless. Step one says we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Powerless. Perhaps we need to review what that means. Incapable, weak, feeble, incapacitated, helpless, immobilized, without strength, debilitated, disabled, infirm. Count me in. Step one is an admission of the central problem we face as compulsive overeaters. Our powerlessness over food and the unmanageable life that has resulted. Once we can admit our powerlessness, a door opens to the solution to our problem. As long as we deny our powerlessness, however, our problem cannot be solved. The first step is about admitting defeat in our battle with compulsive overeating. But step one is not merely an intellectual admission of powerlessness. It is an emotional acceptance of our powerlessness at the gut level. This acceptance of powerlessness and unmanageability is an experience that the AA 12 and 12 refers to as utter defeat, bankruptcy, hopelessness, and hitting bottom. Based on our own actual experience, we find ourselves in a deep pit of personal powerlessness and unmanageability. We must experience our powerlessness so it becomes the launching pad of desperation to seek and find power. Joining us today to speak about powerlessness is Len P., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. Len is dedicated to trudging this 12-step road of life and to carrying this message of recovery to those who still suffer. And it's with great pleasure and gratitude I welcome Len to the line this morning. Good morning, Len. Star one to unmute Len. Len, star one to unmute. And can I confirm that I'm being heard, please? Can someone confirm that I'm being heard? Star one to unmute.
Okay. Got that. Okay, thank you. Let me work on... Thank you. Thanks for letting me know I'm being heard. And obviously our speaker is having some technical issues. So let me... Give me a moment and I'll take care of that. Thank you, everybody. Please, I appreciate your patience. Len star one to unmute. This is Len. Can I be heard? Len, yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's all yours. Oh. <laughs> okay. okay. Sorry for the difficulties. Go right ahead. Oh, I'm ter terribly sorry for all the difficulties. Uh, thank you, Lane, for bearing with me. Yes. I just want to make sure, Len, I'm sorry, I just want to perfect your audio quality. Are you on speaker or you're on the regular phone line? I, I'm on the regular phone. Is this okay. Okay, okay, excellent. So go right ahead. Thank uh, you and welcome. Sorry, everyone. I Major, uh, major technical difficulties. Uh, sorry. And thank you so much for asking me to lead uh, Vision for You. What an honor. <clears throat> I'm so grateful for this phone fellowship. And my dear friend Harlan says, and I agree, that Vision for You is the renaissance of OA. And I hear recovery that the big book outlines here. And not only just the problem, which I hear so much in meetings, face-to-face uh, -face meetings, but the solution, more importantly. And so the question would be, why did I... Uh, entitled the speech, uh, The Definition of Powerless. Well, actually, uh, it was truncated. I, I had originally um, wanted to name it. The main object of this book was in, is, is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Um, but I, I thought about it, and I thought, you know, it would be better to actually talk about powerless and powerlessness. And, um, and I wanted to talk about that because, you know, in in this program and if, before actually working a rigorous program and I, and I will talk about the difference between working a rigorous program and not so rigorous program because that's been my experience. I will define uh, what powerless is and basically I was asleep in my condition. Well, get a little bit into my story uh, in terms of my compulsive eating. I was a compulsive eater right out of the gate um, you know, an early example of this really has everything to do with, um, you know, going shopping with mom. I remember very early on and, you know, I was probably uh, four or five and I remember, you know, going uh, shopping and we would go shopping uh, together and I had a brother and sister and we would go to the store with mom and <clears throat> basically get some of those very sugared uh, items, those items, those frozen items that everyone loves on a hot day. And, and I remember they came in, you know, the ice cream.
We can't hear him anymore. Len, my apologies. Can you press star one to unmute once again, please? Okay. There um, you go. So- Just continue. Okay. It's not your fault. Go right ahead. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. So I'm not sure where you guys left off, but um, as a child, just as, as a child. Yes. yes. And and so we found ice cream and basically the frozen block of ice cream. And essentially, we would come home, rip open the the uh, you know bags, the uh, bags, and to get to the ice cream. And I remember the frozen block was so frozen that we had to use literally a knife to cut the ice cream into equal portions. And so it was me and my two uh, siblings and my mother, and it would be cut equal portions, you know, and you take that half gallon and cut it into equal portions. And essentially, um, dad never knew we had ice cream because we ate it all, you know, before uh, he even came home. And this behavior of eating and and food was reinforced when um, I discovered cooking. And at an early age, while other boys were playing baseball, I was watching uh, Julia Child. Um, I was begging mom for cooking books, I remember. And, um, you know, I got to the point where she would have me routinely cook gourmet meals uh, for her party. She would have dinner parties and I would be this, you know, little wonder kind, if you want to call it uh, gourmet chef, you know, before I was even eight, you know, I was cooking uh, before, while I was growing up. So before program, you know, and that was 20 years ago, before that, um, I was well over 425 pounds. And I stopped weighing myself after that, because uh, literally, the scales that I used couldn't go up past that. And, um, I was already in a size 60 and a 68 inch waist and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, six foot three. And so I was almost, uh, as big as round as I was tall. And these pants were getting tight. The 68 and 68 inch waist pants were getting tight and there's no greater, um, you know, uh, humiliation than going to the fat people store where you can't buy pants that are bigger than uh, the biggest size. And not only that, but I had a 389 cholesterol. I had diabetes. I had a heart attack when I was 39. Sleep apnea, plantar fasciitis, and you know, suicidal ideation. And it wasn't that I was actively planning my suicide, but I just didn't want to live another gray day. You know, I had crushing depression. And it's not hard to understand in retrospect why I was depressed. You know, the fact that I felt imprisoned in a body that I hated, you know, um, that it was uh, it was horrible. I mean, it was horrible. I had this hatred, this self-hatred. I would avoid looking at myself in mirrors. Um, you know, I would hide behind people and pictures if I allowed pictures to be taken of me anyways. You know, I would dress in black and in, you know, long vertical stripes, you know, all you know, trying to uh, mask the 425 plus pounds, Um, you know, kids would laugh and point and I would break chairs. My brother had amazing teak furniture, outdoor furniture that uh, he had and it's very expensive. And I remember sitting in one of the chairs and, you know, crashing through it and, you know, uh, just embarrassed as all can be. 
car seats. I actually broke the car seat in my in my um, uh, Mazda. I had a Mazda 626, and I remember breaking that car seat. And I had to buy a, a an old Cadillac actually because it had the big bench seats, and the big bench seats were the only kinds of seats I could sit in because I couldn't fit in normal seats. You know, I couldn't fit in chairs at movie theaters. Airplane seats were horrible. Uh, I couldn't fit in them. And, you know, the flight attendants would, um, you know, some of them were nice and they would uh, hand me that, you know, um, uh, seatbelt extender uh, surreptitiously. They would kind of gently give it to me uh, quietly, but others weren't so nice. And, um, you know, it was horrible. It was just so horrible where they would, you know, literally hold out that seatbelt extender and let everyone know that, you know, the fat man couldn't buckle his seat, you know. And, uh, you know, I have a daughter and I remember this very vividly. I was, I'm out in California and we have a lot of amusement parks and here she is a young girl and and we went to a, a place where they have brides. And I remember waiting in line with her probably about a half an hour. We finally got up to the ride and um, here she is, you know, she's about eight or nine years old and here I am 425 pounds. And, and that little arm that comes down to hold us into the ride. Well, you know, I had a 60 inch, 68 inch waist and here she is this little girl and I couldn't be on the same ride with her. And I remember how horrible it was when she went on that ride. And for some reason, they allowed a grown man to go on that ride. And I don't know why I allowed it, but they did. And I did. I guess I was so embarrassed. And I remember watching her, you know, with an eagle eye and seeing, you know, her like go all the way to the edge of the seat to get as far away from the stranger, the stranger adult male. Uh, because he, you know, she was, you know, terrified of being on a ride with a stranger, with an adult. And here I am helpless really watching her. But, you know, it was just horrible, the fact that I couldn't be with her. And, you know, my life had become the bedevilments, like outlined on page 52 of the big book. And I was depressed. You know, nothing made me happy. I just lived to eat and check out and numb out. And, I became a mush and just basically sat around and ate all day. You know, I was having trouble with the personal relationships. This is the bedevilments. I couldn't control my emotional nature. And I was a prey to misery and depression. That was my life. And I couldn't make a living that satisfied me. I was always, you know, trouble in trouble in terms of, you know, always imagining things at work and having, you know, um, issues at work. I had this feeling of uselessness and I was full of fear. And I was incredibly unhappy. And I really didn't seem like I could be help to real people, nor did I care to be of help. And I essentially gave up. You know, I gave up on the idea. I figured that I was going to die on this disease. Here I was already 425 pounds. You know, I was diabetic. You know, I I had sleep apnea. And I figured I would just die from one of these obesity-related illnesses. And instead of shooting myself, which I had the means to do that, I I thought, you know, it would embarrass my parents and my family if I did that. So I would just, you know, die from one of these diseases. And I just gave up. And I thought I would never, ever have a normal life. 
And, you know, as it is with my higher power, and as like Harlan loves to say, is it God or is it God? I had what I would call a direct communication from God one night. I remember I was sitting in my truck and I was at my top weight and I had already had my heart attack some months ago. And But in this vision, and I want to call it a vision, sitting next to me was my daughter, but she wasn't the nine-year-old girl that, you know, couldn't I couldn't sit next to on the ride. She wasn't that nine-year-old girl at that point. She was now 20. She was in her early 20s and she was in a wedding dress and she was crying. And why was she crying? Because dad had already died from compulsive overeating years ago. This vision kind of, you know, I, I right now talking about it, I have goosebumps on my arms. You know, it, what it did is it forced me to at least start to try, you know, anything to lose this weight. So I tried every single diet at the checkout line in the supermarkets. You know, you read about those magic bullets, those silver bullets every day if you go into into the supermarket. And of course, they never worked. And I did Weight Watchers and I did Tops and I did Optifast three times. And if you don't know what that is, that's a medically um, supervised diet where they give you these shakes that you're supposed to drink uh, five of them a day. And under 800 calories. And I remember, um, you know, I was doing the, the soft to fast and I, and I remember thinking, you know, I just, um, you know, um, uh, wanted the shakes, you know, they made you listen to counseling. I remember and there was this 20 something, you know, 110 pound girl in her twenties, you know, telling me what it's like to be over 400 pounds. And she's telling this group of folks who are morbidly obese, you know, how wonderful and healthy it is and wonderful to be normal weight. No kidding. <laughs> you know, and I, I just remember, you know, not doing this um, Optifast. I mean, what happened was I would do the, the uh, diet and, and uh, they said, well, why don't you try um, this powder, you know, after three months of on this shake and and it's sort of like chicken soup, they claimed, and it was just this yellow powder. And they said, well, if you want to add a little something, add celery. Well, in my compulsive head, it was dried celery. They said you could add. Well, my head said, well, if you could add dried celery, why not regular celery? And then I said, you know, the next day I said, well, you know, celery, you know, cabbage is a lot like celery. So why don't I add some cabbage? And, you know, on and on and on. By the end of the thing, I had so much different foods in there. Um, you know, it wasn't a wonder that all of a sudden, you know, I wasn't losing weight in the um, in the in that uh, diet program. But what was interesting and again, is it odd or is it God? When I entered that program, that Optifast program, there was an OA meeting that met one hour later in that very same um, uh, complex. And, and here it was, you know, uh, an hour later, I decided to go into my first OA meeting. And it was, um, it was, you know, uh, at least it got me to OA. So I'm not saying that the optic, you know, the optifast didn't work, but it got me to the doors of OA. But I'm not saying that I got recovery uh, right away. In fact, I languished in OA for three years. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those people who got it. You know, you hear about folks who get it right away. That's not me. And in fact, I languished for about three years and I didn't lose one pound. Here I am, 425 pounds, and I'm in meetings and I'm not losing weight. 
But the problem was I wasn't in meetings like Vision for You. I wasn't in big book meetings. I was in normal, typical face-to-face OA meetings. And in my experience, in the meetings that I happened to go to, these weren't meetings that really were talking about recovery. You know, I heard things in meetings that would kill me today if I stuck with them. And by the way, they were all from very well-meaning people. These are people who wanted to help, but they weren't working a program. You know, and looking back at it 20 years ago, they really weren't working something. They were, at best, it might have been dieting with group support. Maybe that's what it was. But, you know, they were calling it an OA meeting. You know, I, I did hear snippets of recovery. I would hear a couple of phrases now and again in these meetings, but I also heard very toxic notions and no mention of the big book, really. And in one meeting, I remember I list, we listened to motivational tapes. And in another meeting, I remember it was held in a restaurant where people were literally eating pancakes and syrup while reading the OA Purple Book. So I didn't get recovery those first three years, but then a miracle happened. I remember I heard my grand sponsor speak a month later, and it was an Eskimo you know, in program who urged me to go to this meeting. It was a holiday marathon. It was November. It was pre-Thanksgiving. And I remember I didn't want to go because it was raining. And like I told you, I was in a Cadillac, and it was a convertible. It was a 1974 Eldorado convertible Cadillac. But the top was broken. It had permanently, uh, it was permanently um, stuck down. So here it is raining. And and I, <laughs> and I'm driving. And imagine this, you know, idea of a, you know, 425-pound man driving with the top down in the rain to go to a meeting. And I only went because someone had really urged me to go. And that's when I heard the magic. I heard my future grand sponsor talking at that point. And I was looking at this man, and he looked a lot like Keanu Reeves. And he said that he was over 500 pounds at one time at the height of his disease. And he was talking about food in a way I hadn't ever heard in OA meetings before. He made the analogy to alcohol because he was an alcoholic and a drug addict and how it, how this food altered his mind, that certain foods made him um, uh, check out. In fact, he talked about in terms of what the food did for him. And uh, I was in OA for three years and never heard this before. And he mentioned that he only used the big book. So. Here, you know, was it odd? Where's the God? Well, something even more importantly happened. You know, um, it turned out that uh, I um, was intrigued, and uh, and he was you know, a very, very powerful speaker. I remember, and he invited me to lunch, and I thought, oh no, I have to, I have to eat in front of him. <laughs> but he talked about the addictive nature of foods and the eating behaviors, and then he invited me to an OA meeting that that he typically went to, and it was an amazing meeting. It was like a revival meeting. Uh, There was so much energy in that meeting. And after the meeting, a member who I didn't recognize said, hey, Len, how you doing? And I looked at him, and I I didn't recognize him. I who is this? And it turned out that the last time I had seen him was actually three years earlier. When I entered OA, he was in that meeting, And he was well over 450 pounds. And here he stood in front of me and he was at, you know, at best 170 pounds. He had lost a huge amount of weight. And I I saw that there was something in his eyes. He was different. And then, you know, the one-two punch. I had 
that year, Harlan had um, led the OA birthday party in L.A., and I wasn't there, but I heard a CD of him, and it was like a one-two punch, as Harlan says, is it God or is it God? And I needed to hear these two things and see that it actually worked. And um, so, you know, the big book talks in page 27 about huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. You know, that ideas, emotions, and attitudes, once for guiding forces, are suddenly cast aside and a completely new set of conceptions and motives began to dominate. And Dr. Young talked about it and talked about having to be woken up to uh, how, you know, to make this decision to turn your life around. So what I learned a lot about early on was that I have an allergy and believe that, you know, the, um, the action of addictive food or quantity or food behaviors is a manifestation of an allergy. And this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class of folks. You know, I, I remember you know, at work, you know, there was a fella who is a normie and he had this big, you know, Costco size um, portion of, uh, you know, of um, candy on his desk. And I remember seeing it there for three years and maybe at best he might have eaten one or two of them. You know, I was amazed because for me, if something like that was on my desk every day, uh, it would be gone within a day and a half if I was way in my disease. So, you know, I'm different. I'm different than those who are normies. And basically, I suffer from that allergy. I suffer this allergy because once I take that bite, I can't stop eating. And that's the issue. One of the issues of the food, you know, and how I'm different. You know, addictive foods, you know, what is an addictive food for me? Well, it's, you know, a food that I would choose at 2 a.m. in the morning when I'm feeling lonely, depressed, bored, you fill in the blank. But I certainly wouldn't want to eat cucumbers or lettuce or tomatoes. And it definitely, you know, the foods that I choose at the, that hour, you know, contain a lot of sugar, a lot of salt, a lot of fat. So it is about the food, but it's also not about the food. And what I mean by that is there's a strange mental twist. You know, why would I want to eat that first compulsive bite, even though I know all the damage that it can do to me? You know, why would I do that? Well, it's because... I'm an addict because I have a food addiction. And, you know, the decision to blow my abstinence is the real villain. You know, it's am I willing to go off and go out? And so working the steps will guard that desire to eat that first uh, bite compulsively. And so I was told, you know, if, if I didn't eat so much, uh, you know, I would feel better. And, you know, I love to quote Harlan, you know, skinny people and normies told me this. But, you know, the problem is, is that I did feel uh, emotions better. I felt anger better, loneliness, fear better. So the solution was to not want to eat to soothe my emotions, for me not to want to alter my perception to reality and be okay with my feelings, you know. I remember in that meeting, that meeting where I lost half my body weight, I got uh, physical recovery. You know, I went to those meetings that were big book only, and I went through the motions, the motions, mind you, because I remember I told you about rigorous program of working the steps, but I didn't really work the steps the way they, they were intended. And what this led to was a gradual physical relapse. In other words, I started putting the weight back on because I cannot say that I was near emotionally or spiritually recovered. 
And so early on in that uh, physical recovery, I might have got the food under control, but I didn't like feeling my feelings. And therefore, I went through the experience of switching addictions and not feel my feelings. And so I went to gambling and I went to flying my sailplane compulsively and I went to the Internet and TV and films and making lamps, if you could believe that. (laughs) You know, I, I would just do anything to run away from my feelings. And I let the program really slipped from being the number one uh, priority in my life. I stopped calling my sponsor. I stopped reading and writing from the big book. I stopped, quote, unquote, working the steps. I stopped making outreach calls. I went to maybe two meetings a a week, and I kind of sort of did the food, but I binged. Where did I binge? I binged at salad bars. Why? Because my compulsive overeating head told me if I binge at a salad bar, it's healthy and therefore it's okay. So my program was dimming and I was, it was becoming a faint whisper. And my arrogance and my ego and my pride still thought I was doing program. That this is where I was delusional actually attending meetings and being delusional in program. And I'll tell you, there's no torture worse than knowing that there's a solution out there and not using it, gaining the weight back and having a head full of big book and a belly full of food. It's horrible. And relapse was happening to me right in the meetings I was attending. It was horrible. You know, back to the old familiar addiction cycle. You know, the more I ate, the fatter I got, and the fatter I got, the worse I felt, and the more I ate. So, you know, the big book says, Addicts use it because they like the effect and altering my perception of reality, numbing out and checking out. And I'll tell you, you know, was I really working a program? No, and I never really was. You know, I was, you know, what really the the root of some of this issue with me was not having the ability to calm and soothe myself when stressed. I'm not a normie. Nor was I a normie when I started in this disease. You know, my mom uh, believed in tough love. She is a New York uh, powerhouse, you know, that came from New York to come to California. And, you know, she didn't believe in emotion. She didn't believe it was okay to experience emotion. And, in fact, what, you know, I could still remember, you know, coming to mom and skinning my knees when I was three years old and being, you know, blood coming from my knees and wanting to get some sort of relief from mom. And my mom saw me crying and that triggered something in her. And she slapped me across the face and she said, you know, Len, uh, I'll give you a reason to cry. You know, you stop that crying. And I'll tell you, that really did a number on me because what I had learned was calming myself with food was what was acceptable. This is what I was taught early on, but emotion wasn't. And, you know, so the question was, was I willing to work this program as written? You know, I had skipped over the steps, you know, you know, did I, or had I skipped over the steps? Yes. You know, did I really understand the world, the word powerlessness? No. So what does it really mean? You know, we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. I could tell you how compulsive eating ruined my life. I could tell you all the medical reasons and the crushing depression I experienced, but what did this step really mean? Well, after being beaten down by this disease, by every form of self-deception that I was truly working a program, remember, I wasn't really working a program, I realized I didn't understand what powerless meant. 
And, you know, I can't have a firm foundation in this program. If my foundation isn't firm, if I don't do step one correctly, the whole structure will fall apart. And that's exactly what happened to me. So what did powerless mean? Well, the answer was staring at me all the time. I read it countless times in meetings and in the big book. And, and, and I want to talk about it. I grew up in a religion. And it didn't really work for me. You know, I was one of two Jewish kids in school where I never really felt part of the school. You know, I was, the religion was foreign to me. It, it, it was in a foreign language, and I had to go to Hebrew school two times a week. And while other boys were playing sports after school, there I was in Hebrew school and, you know, watching weird rituals, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, my place of worship and, I just didn't dig it, you know, plus other kids got to celebrate Christmas. And, you know, part of me, you know, uh, that was part of the reason why, you know, the schools out here in California have to call it a holiday program, not a Christmas program. And it was due to the fact that my mom, you know, was one of these persons who demanded, you know, if the kids sang Christmas songs, they were going to have to sing Hanukkah songs. And, of course, that made me, you know, want to crawl under a rock, you know, that mom was so loud and you know, how does this correlate to powerlessness? Well, the big book says there's one who has all power. That one is God. So find him now. And so if I'm powerless, I don't have a God in my life. If I'm powerless, you know, power equals God. Powerless means no God. I had abandoned God early on. You know, I rejected God in my, you know, of the religion of my upbringing, and I was powerless. So how could I turn my will and life over to something that I rejected? I didn't have a faith, right? I didn't have faith that God was looking out for me. So, you know, I need program and God. I need you plus me is greater than one plus one. When, because when two compulsive overeaters get together for the purpose of recovery, a power comes in to the mix and it's greater than two. So one plus one, when we come together for the purpose of recovery. I mean, I got together with compulsive eaters all the time at, you know, at uh, all-you-can-eat buffets. But we didn't get together for the purpose of recovery. We got together for the purpose to eat compulsively. But when two or more get together for the purpose of recovery, there's a power that comes in. You know, I liken it to water, you know, H2O. You know, two H's and one O, basically water is life-sustaining. Two compulsive eaters coming together, God comes in, and yet, you know, um, and recovery happens. So I finally decided to do this program the way uh, it's meant to be done. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, the problem is what addiction, and it's all addiction. For me, in my experience, I could be addicted to anything. And, you know, my belief in the lens and perception was delusional. The fact that my thought was demented and basically my feeling was diseased and attitude and distorted and my behavior was dysfunctional. So I had to work the 12 steps. I had, you know, steps one through three, our relationship with power, four through seven with self, eight and nine with others, and 10 through 12, our way of life. You know, step one, powerlessness. I talked about that issue and how the body and the allergy obsession, this was, you know, brilliantly discovered by Dr. Silkworth. And, you know, the answer is abstinence. Then our mind is insane. And Reverend Frank Buckman talked about that and how 
we go through a transformation and then my will. And then it, we understand it's a spiritual malady. And Dr. Carl Jung talked about that. We had to have a spiritual experience. And like I said, I was in the bedevilments and nothing would work. So what did I have to do? I had to make the decision about that power. I had to have a willingness, right? And step three, a decision for that power. Trust is the keystone between this. You know, the fact is my story includes my biology, my family culture, my emotions, the psychology and my spiritual meaning. And there's obstacles to power. And basically these obstacles take the form of resentment, fear, you know, sexual uh, dishonesty, secrets, guilt, and shame. It all comes from self-centeredness. I learned all this in program. Step five, I reveal the obstacles and name the character defects in six and seven, pray for their removal. Name those harms that I've done others and make amends to change and repair. And then forgiveness, you know, basically to release them and to be released from them. You know, I, I think of forgiveness and I think of my mom who, you know, kind of set me up for this idea of addiction. And, and this is a big one, you know, forgiving mom. And, you know, when I think about this, you know, mom grew up in a, in a tough environment. You know, she grew up in New York and she grew up uh, really being the, so to speak, red-haired stepchild of, of her mom and dad. And basically, you know, my grandmother took it out on my mom and beat her. And, and, and so my mom, a tough lady, a self-made lady, a lady who believes in control, and no emotions, you know, she got out uh, from there. But, you know, what good does it do for me to hold on to resentment? You know, she did the best that she could at the time that she was raising me. You know, she understood the wor world through a lens of being beaten and being tough. And she didn't want some boy you know, who was full of emotion and crying, you know, she didn't believe in that. Well, you know, she's an addict, she's diseased, she has emotional issues, and she's spiritually, um, you know, uh, deficient. And, you know, can I forgive her? And, you know, the idea of forgiveness is huge, because do I want to carry resentments, you know, carry that resentment like a barge around my neck? Think about a big garbage barge that I'm towing and I'm towing this garbage bar throughout my life of all the resentments, can I forgive and cut the cord and release those things? And that's what's so powerful about forgiveness, right? I could get myself out of that jail. And when I do, I entered the world of the spirit. And this is where my body, my mind, my will are all uh, recovered. Actually, my body and my mind are recovered, but my will is never cured, right? So I could have physical sobriety, but I have to always guard on that will, right? And so I have to clear that channel. I clear that channel in step 10, you know, and doing the on-the-spot inventories. Fill that channel with prayer and meditation, right? And then empty that channel in step 12 in service. You know, basically my problem was that I was asleep. I was asleep to the fact that I had a, you know, I was viewing the world through a distorted lens and that my emotions were disturbed. I was living in the bedevilments, and I was having trouble with my personal relationships. I can't control my emotional nature. I was a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living that satisfies me. I have a feeling of uselessness and full of fear, and I'm unhappy 
and I can't seem to be of real help to other people, nor do I care. That's when I'm in the bedevilment. But, you know, the fact is, is that when I'm in recovery, I stay awake and I do my inventory and do my meditation, do my accountability. You know, step 10 is our way of life. You know, we have to watch for resentment, fear, dishonesty, and selfishness. We have to do that all day long. We have to take action and pray and discuss it with our sponsor or other people in program and make amends, you know, to take care of this thing and then do service. You know, take that bad feeling that we have, you know, that when a resentment occurs or fear or dishonesty or something comes up and immediately pause, pause when agitated. God is in the pause. You know, I would always just do the same thing, which was the default behavior. In other words, I'd have an agitation and then run to addiction. Agitation, go to an addiction. Agitation, eat. Agitation, eat. Pause. God is in the pause because I break that cycle, right? I break the cycle. I, you know, try to figure out why am I agitated. Then I do the four columns, right? And then I discuss this with a sponsor or a trusted person in program, and I make amends if I have to. And then I immediately go and think of others and call someone else in program, not to discuss my problem that I just had, but to help others. And when you see what the transformation is from agitation to helping others, this is our way of life. Taking something that's bad, turning it into something that's good, and not eating and being okay not to eat, not to go into addiction. And the results are forgiveness, trust, and honesty and love. And that's where the emotional sobriety comes in. You know, our way of life, step 11, is to improve our uh, God consciousness, to be other-centered with a capital O. And step 12 is to enlarge our life, with a, to be other-centered with a small O, to be, you know, with other people, to help other people. And this is where the spiritual sobriety comes in. You know, in the evening, I do my inventory, and in the morning, I think and I consider and listen. I think and hear, you know, God. I, I hear that little voice of what I should do. And then all day long, I'm awake and then pause when agitated. I don't run to addiction. So this spiritual awakening leads to this change. And this change is, you know, that the thinking better, feeling better, behaving better. And it's done to us, not by us. You know, and this is what our way of life is. It's to carry that message in step 12. And that carrying the message is actually to immune, to make me more likely not to step out, to go away from program. You know, it's, if I carry this message like I am this morning or with my sponsees or in meetings, um, it helps me. It gives me almost like an insurance policy not to act out. You know, our way of life, you know, is to practice these principles in our relationships, our family, our work and fellowship and community and the core values that we get, you know, is, is you know, step one, the honesty and the action to concede and two and is faith and hope and the decision. Three is trust and decisions to turn our life over to God and four, courage, you know, and to name and analyze those obstacles and those character defects and, you know, five is integrity, you know, the confession of those defects and the willingness in six to make a list of those character defects and the humility to actually pray to have those things removed and eight, compassion, you know, make a list of those people we harmed and nine, that justice, you know, to change and repair the things and harms we have done 
and then 10, the discipline to keep on doing this thing, this vigilance, and awareness, and 11, prayer and meditation and service, which is, you know, really an act of love. You know, bottom line, what, what is this program about? It's meetings. Well, in meetings, we identify the problem. You know, in the big book is the instructional manual. The 12 steps is the precise uh, process that we use, that path that, that works for us. You know, prayer is, again, the submission of powerless, right? And, again, service, con- is, which is taking contrary action. And, a, and using a sponsor, which is needed for accountability, right? This process is not an event. Basically, our body is our physical sobriety, our mind, our emotional sobriety, and our will, our spiritual uh, sobriety. And I'll tell you, what happens is we could go right back into the disease when, when we disintegrate that process, and we could go back into obsession so easily. And then the body, finally, you know, we start eating again and the allergy takes over. So it's very important that this awakening focus on the self-centered nature of this disease and think about how we have to become other-centered, God-centered, and other people-centered. And it basically leads to, you know, our recovery, our spiritual awakening, you know, turning our disease, our our dis-ease into harmony, right? Turning you know, our addiction uh, substance into, um, you know, abstinence and anger going into love and fear going into trust and inappropriate sex behavior going into guided principles and dishonesty going into rigorous honesty and secrets becoming transparent and guilt and shame going to freedom and unhealthy self-esteem going to healthy self-worth and turning my will into God's will. You know, our 12-step uh, spirituality is really basically three things. And, you know, in fact, back in, uh, I'm looking at it right now, February 1937, uh, Dr. Bob, he wrote a prescription. And that prescription basically says two alcoholics. And he says, always remember this. He says, one, trust God, two, clean house, and three, help others. And today I live in recovery. I live in 10, 11, and 12, and I'm alive. And just an FYI, you know, I walked my daughter down the aisle last October. Oh, my God, I'm getting so many goosebumps right now. I made it. I actually saw my daughter at her wedding and walked her down the aisle. And I I get to live life today. You know, my higher power brought me to you. And you programmed the big book and God. uh, Keep those promises alive in me. You know, I'm not powerless today. Powerless, by the way, is only mentioned one time in the big book, and that is before you work the program. Power is actually mentioned 66 times. I have power, and if if I stick with this way of life, I have the power. If I turn my back on it, I don't. And I'd like to close with a miracle that I experienced in this program. And this is an amazing story that just moves me. Uh, And when I think about it, I get goosebumps. And you know, I, a lot of times I asked to share in meetings, and sometimes, you know, we're asked to share in meetings that are not very convenient. And, I, you know, the joke is is that uh, I was asked to uh, share on a Friday at 6 p.m. And if anyone knows California, I live in Orange County, which is uh, on the other side of the Orange Curtain and uh, in L.A., 
uh, is where I was asked to speak, and I was actually asked to speak at West LA. And so I was asked to speak at this meeting at 6 p.m., and, and it was on a Friday, and if anyone knows the traffic in L.A., I, you know, I, I basically said, well, if I leave on Thursday, I might make the Friday at 6 p.m. meeting. But in all, you know, just put aside, I, you know, I left early and got there, and I spoke at the meeting. And, you know, the miracles and the, and the golden nuggets happened in the parking lot after the meeting. And I remember there was this guy who came to me, and he was easily 500 pounds, and he was like five foot five. He was just a big guy, and you could see in his eyes, you know, he was on his last legs. You know that he was in trouble. You know, his eyes were dull and gray, and he said, you know, Len, would you sponsor me? And I remember saying, absolutely, you know, thank you so much for the honor for me to, to ask me to sponsor you, and I did. And over the period of a couple of years, he went from this over 500 pounds and, you know, he was full on diabetic shooting insulin and all the medical conditions you could imagine that he had. And he went down from that 500 pounds to 180 pounds in the course of two years. And I got to witness this, you know, I'm not taking credit for it, but I helped guide him. And, you know, that's the juice that we get. This is the goodie that we get by working with others. And I remember getting a call from him and it was, this amazing call and I was worried because he called me and he was crying and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you know, I got my lab results back and he, he, uh, I was, Oh no, you know, I'm thinking the worst. And, and next thing you know, you know, he's telling me that every one of his lab results were not only normal, they were low normal. In other words, he was at the low end of the scale. When he started with me, he was on death's door and he was full on diabetic shooting insulin he stopped shooting insulin. He, all his blood tests, his glucose, his, you know, triglycerides, everything that he had that was way out of whack, all went into low normal. And I'll tell you, that's the goodie that we get. Actually watching that transformation, watching someone come alive again in the program, this is what, you know, I live for. I love Seeing transformation, it's like a butterfly. You know, you see someone actually get another chance at life, just like I got. And that's the dues I have to pay. And that, but I do I have to pay it, or in a bad way? No, I want to pay it because that keeps my program alive. And you know, I will borrow from one aspect of my religion, and that is, uh, it's stated in the Talmud, and it, basically, I'm going to steal it and. It's if you save one life, you save the world entire. And this is what we do one day at a time with with each person. And I'll tell you, you know, I think of this disease, you know, is a lot like a great white shark, you know, and I'm afraid of sharks. You know, I'm out here in California. We got a lot of great white sharks out there in the ocean now. And And when I'm not in recovery, I'm on a raft and I'm on a little plastic raft and that shark is right there at water level and it scares the hell of me. It's a monster when I'm not in recovery. But that very same shark taken from the perspective of an ocean liner, you know, is now looks like a little guppy. And all of a sudden, you know, that disease now is still there. It's still a whisper, right? It's a reminder, but it's not that big, bright, great white shark. And when I stick close to you in program, I'm not powerless anymore. I'm full of power. And that's the trick. Staying with program, sticking to what we're supposed to do, doing the deal. We don't have to be powerless. And with that, I'll close.
Thank you so much, Len, for your beautiful and inspiring presentation this morning. Truly touched my heart and brought tears to my eyes. Thank you so much. Len's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 12,920. That's 12920. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Len by pressing star 1 to I've got a big fat guts. Okay. Start Cindy one. D. Cindy D. Paula. Is that Paula? Sam Paula with a T. Okay, gotcha, Paula. Thank you. Rowena. Rowena K. Rowena K. Sam S. Sam S. All right, that's a great group to start with. Everybody mute except for Cindy D. Good morning, Lynn. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I got a lot out of it. Um, you were When you were going through the steps, you used kind of one word to describe each. Like I caught a few of them, four was courage, five integrity, six willingness. Do you have those written down somewhere that you can share, or could you go through them again for me? Oh, sure, certainly. So, so basically just going through all the principles, really, and certainly, and I'll, I'll go ahead and do that right now. So basically with step one, um, it really comes down to honesty, right? And, and the action that we take is a concession in that. Is, is, you know, are we being honest? Are we being awake? Two is faith and hope, and that's really a decision, right, at that point. Three is a trust. That's the spiritual principle. Step three and that is a decision to turn our uh, will and life over to the care of God. Four is courage, and this courage is actually to name uh, and analyze those obstacles. You know, we figure out, you know, those um, resentments, those sexual harms done others, the fears, right? And then five, uh, integrity, and that is basically being, uh, you know, confessing it. To someone, in other words, giving it away. And five, so you have to be, you know, uh, full of integrity when you do that. And six is willingness. And why is it a six a willingness? Well, you have to make a list of those character defects, those things that are blocking your channel to your higher power, right? Because if you were able to stop eating compulsively, you also can be able to get rid of character defects as well by mm -hmm. what? In seven, humility, praying them, or asking having God remove them, right? So you pray to God to have those removed in seven. And in eight, compassion. That's the, uh, the principle of eight, and basically is to make a list of those people you've harmed. You know, I've harmed so many people in my disease. You know, I was angry. I was full of hatred. I wasn't present for my daughter when she needed me early on in life, you know. So and so that's making that list, right? And then in nine is justice, right? That's the principle of nine because you're going to change or you're going to promise to change and repair those harms that you did others. And then 10 is discipline. You know, you're going to continue to look at yourself and stay awake. 
And that's vigilance. That's the action. And 11 is awareness, right? We do prayer and meditation. We want to know what God has in store for us. And we want to listen to that little tiny voice in the morning when we pray. We want to hear it. We want to hear it during our prayer meditation. What does God want for us that day? And then service in number 12. And really what that is, is is love, right? We have to love our fellow compulsive overeater. I believe absolutely that God gave us this program, and he gave us this program for a reason. He gave it because he wanted us to love each other. He wanted us to help each other. You know, the good, there's a saying, and excuse the imagery, but the, you know, the, um, you know, the, um, I'm going to use a word here. I hope I don't offend anyone, but the shit that we've gone through can actually fertilize recovery in others. Okay. And mm-hmm. that's where, that's where nothing is wasted. Every, all that bad experience that you had can be shared with others. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're giving other people hope because here you are recovered. They are currently in the disease and they're going to look at you as an example of what they can be. That was my experience when I saw that man who was 400 pounds in my first meeting, and I saw him, and he was 170 pounds. I mean, he gave me hope. He, you know, I saw the evidence that this thing can work. So, anyways, I hope that helps. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate you're very, that. You're very Thank welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Cindy. Tala, your turn with a question. Star one to unmute. Tala, star one to unmute. Hi, can you hear me now? I hear you well. Go right ahead. Thank you, Leah, for your loving service, and thank you, Len, for your deep share. My question is, could you expand further on, you mentioned the recovery that happens with the mind and recovery of the physical body you mentioned that our will is not cured. Can you talk a little right. further about that with maybe some examples? Thank you. Absolutely. So we can, you know, when we stay away from uh, our, you know, addictive process, whatever that may be, and like I talked about the fact that we had, you know, I had experienced not only addiction to food, but I was an addict's addict. I could do anything to run away from my emotions. But when you get those things in check and you do the, um, you know, emotional recovery, that's all fine and dandy. But what happens is when when it comes to your will, your will, and think about it this way, is what God gave you. God gave you a will. He gave you um, choice. In other words, we're not robots. We're not just these you know, uh, uh, robots that are programmed and we will do exactly what we're programmed. God gave, gave us the freedom of choice. And I can choose to do program today or I could choose to not do program today. I could act out uh, in my disease. I could, you know, think about it this way. When, when something comes up, I could choose not to do a 10-step. I could choose not to do what the book tells me to do, which is pause when agitated. And I could choose to engage in my addiction. So the thing is, am I ever cured of will? No, I always have the power of choice 
And so do I choose recovery today is the question. And the question uh, hopefully is yes. I, I, the answer to that question is yes. You know, if I do the work, if I do the work and program and I truly work this program, my choice will more likely be that I choose to do recovery. But I don't have to do recovery. Remember, God gave me a brain and he also gave me a will. You know, this is, that's the one wonderful thing about life is you could choose to do anything you want. However, you know, there's consequences to doing things that you want. And if you decide to do things that are not programmed, well, you might just very well find yourself back into addiction. And so that is probably the easiest kind of overview I could say when it comes to those examples. In other words, we get recovered physically, we get recovered emotionally, but we always have the choice to go back, go back to the disease. And so that's, you know, um, kind of my, my take on it. <laughs> okay. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks, Carla. Rowena Kay, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, Lynn. Thank you for your share. Um, a lot of it resonated with me. Um, you said that your emotions were frowned upon by your mother um, as a child. Yes. And so um, you used food and you used other things. You would use anything to get away from your feelings. And you mentioned um, uh, television and the Internet. And I was just wondering, because I binge watch um, Netflix and I use the Internet and various yes. other things. So I just wonder yes. what those look like for you today and what the process was. Yes. I mean, are you able to do those things today in moderation or what is it? Right. Like? Well, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, the question is, you know, like food, when you think about it in recovery or being recovered in food, we can't entirely stop eating, right? I mean, I could plug the jug. I mean, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I, I'm not supposed to share that, but I'd, I plug the jug. I don't drink anymore, right? That's easy because I don't need... Um, alcohol to live. Well, I need food to live, and I take that tiger out of the cage at least, well, three times a day, right? That's my food plan. I eat three times a day. Well, same thing goes with internet and TV and everything else. Am I, you know, checking out or running away in watching TV or internet? Well, if I use it in a way that's abstinent, and that's an interesting term when it comes to like internet usage or computer usage or TV watching, you know, is it getting to the point where I'm running away from my feelings by going you know, to the internet or going to TV or going to any other thing where I could obsess on? And that really is an interesting question in terms of you know, you know, perception. Am I doing it to a point where I'm doing it for the purpose of running away and I'm doing it to a point where my life is becoming unmanageable. You know, I'm on the internet, uh, what, maybe an hour a day throughout the entire day. So, you know, broken up into little 10 minute snippets perhaps. And, and is some of it for entertainment? Yes, of course. Is a lot of it for work? Yes, it is. Um, so the question is, am I using the internet compulsively? No. And am I, binge watching TV. No. You know, today I don't need that. I did, however, when I was switching addictions, when I was not working program, when I did not work a rigorous program, and I was actually deluding myself that I was working a program. This is the this is that horrible place where you're 
you know, are you kind of working a program or are you really working a program? I really had to look at myself and look at the truth around what I did. Was I running away from my emotions and my feelings uh, to, you know, engage in these other behaviors? And I was, you know, before I really looked at it and said, no, you know, I can't continue to do this. You know, you have to build your recovery on a solid foundation. You have to work each step rigorously and honestly with integrity. And I think that's the difference today. I, you know, prior to, um, you know, this realization, I was checking out with these other, you know, um, ways of, um, you know, running away from emotion, you know, using these other vehicles, these other behaviors. And um, today I don't do that. So I hope that helps. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Rowena. Pam S. Star one to unmute. Thank you, uh, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Len, um, for your powerful lead. Um, I have two questions. Um, my first is, um, you had categorized some of the steps into uh, what they were um, focused on. You said one to three is power, four to five is self. I was wondering if you could repeat that. And then my question for you is, um, you had also mentioned after you do um, a 10 step to then uh, immediately go out and do service um, with others without, um, you know, mentioning that 10 step. I was just wondering uh, kind of what that outreach process looks like for you and, uh, and what you focus on. So thank you. Absolutely. Yes. So essentially, the um, well. Let me start with your last question first. You know, when I when I do the ten step, when I do um, uh, this process, what it looks like when I actually go out and, and um, um, do this ten step, it, the, the process is very specific. And essentially, what I have to do is I have to, of course, pause when I'm agitated. Right. That's the first thing. I have to always stay awake. To this, right? And and what happens is, you know, agitation occurs all day long. I mean, you know, just drive on the freeway and in uh, L.A., you'll be agitated. I guarantee you. Uh, you know, there's certain things that I guarantee, and that's one of them. Um, so essentially, what um, um, what I've um, you know learned is that I have to what I have to pause when agitated, stop, break the cycle, essentially. Because it was agitation, eat, agitation, eat, agitation, eat. And now it's agitation, pause, right? And then ask myself, the book says, ask yourself, why are you agitated, right? Why am I agitated? And then you go and work the four columns and you, you know, you say, okay, what is it that agitated me? You know, uh, who did it to me? What did they do? What part of self does it affect? And then what part that I have in it. You know, I am not as pure as snow. I probably did something to step on someone's toes. And this is what, um, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, probably started the ball rolling, right? And then I discuss it. I discuss it with my sponsor or someone who I trust in program. And they ask me, you know, did you pray about this? And did you, or, you know, do you need to make an amends? And then the most important part is if I don't need to make amends, I go to the next step of this process, and that is to make an outreach call to someone in program or anyone really and ask how their day is going. What are they doing today? How can I be of service? 
you know, how are you doing? Uh, you know, oh, are you have are you still having issues with your neighbor's dog, let's say, or whatever the issue is, you know, that you're in, that you know about your friend, and let them start talking, and let them and see where you could help problem solve, right? And you might be able to give them some great piece of advice that they never considered. And what does that do? It makes you feel good about doing something that would make you feel good. You're helping someone else, right? And all of a sudden, through this process, you kind of forgot why, you know, you refocused on helping someone else. You kind of forgot that original agitation or it's been minimized because you went through a process of deflating it, right? And now you replace that agitation with a feeling of good by helping someone else. You took something that was bad and you turned it into something that was good and you helped yourself, but you also helped someone else, right? Okay. And, and so that's the magic. The magic is transformation. It's a hat trick. It's a card trick. You're taking something that's bad, a bad feeling. You're turning it into a great feeling because you just helped someone. And you went through a process, a real prescriptive process of identifying why you are feeling agitated, right? And you're, you're diffusing it, getting rid of it, and then you're helping someone else, right? You're, you're changing the focus of your mind to helping someone else. And how perfect is that? How economical is that in God's universe? You're taking a, a bad feeling, you're turning it into good, and it helps you, and it helps someone else, right? And isn't that the essence of love, Right. And so you asked about the steps and, and the different steps and what they're related to. So steps one through three is a relationship with power. You're going to discover that you're powerless, and you're going to uh, find that the one who has all power, and that power is God. And you're going to uh, make a decision. Are you going to turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understood it? So steps one through three with power. Four through seven is with self. You're going to do some cleanup work, right? You're going to be looking at yourself. You're going to be looking at your resentments and fears and sex inventory. You're going to be looking at your character defects, and you're going to be looking at, you know, is there a way that you can improve on that, or at least you identify those issues. Eight and nine, you're going to make repairs to the, those people that you've harmed, because in our disease, we harm people. You know, we harm people either through neglect or resentments or anger or who knows what, fill in the blank. I mean, I have them all. And then, of course, 10 through 12, which is our way of life. This is where we want to be when we're recovered, not cured, but recovered. We want to always be living in 10, 11, and 12 because we want to continually watch out for anything that agitates us and throws us off kilter. We want to pray and meditate daily. And we want to give this thing away because we have to give it away in order to keep it. It's a spiritual coin. If you don't spend it, you lose it. So basically, I have to pass it on to someone else in order to keep it. I have to give something away in order to, to strengthen what I got. Isn't that crazy? But that's God's universe. That's how God works. Taking you know the stuff that you've gone through, those bad experiences, turning it around, and by giving it to someone else, so that they don't feel alone in this disease, that they know that there's someone else out there that suffered just like they are suffering, and that there's hope. There's hope for recovery. So that's that's kind of the summary of these steps. I hope that helps. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Pam S. 
We can take another group with questions. This will be our final invitation for questions. Lisa B. Leon B. Leon B. Lisa B. Lisa B. Got Leon. John, is that correct? Scott. Don. Larry K. I got you, Larry. Who am I missing? Is there a Don, a John? Scott, S-C-O-T-T. Oh, Scott, thanks for your patience with me. Gotcha. Who else? Thank you. Star one to unmute. If you have a question, great opportunity. If it's on your mind, I'm sure it's on the mind of others. Terry C., thank you. Jenny R. Jenny R. Anyone else? Deborah M. Deborah M. Okay. Going once, twice, three times. Okay. All right. Everybody mute, please, except for Lisa B. Go ahead, Lisa B., with your question. Hello, Lynn. It was so great to hear you. I just felt really, really good. Um, oh, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, I've been in program a long time, and I just need to re-energize my own program. But the question that comes to mind for me is, I wondered if you could describe your um, your feelings about you know, your relationship with God, how you would feel like the nature of God really is for you. And um, uh, Hello? Hello? Lisa B.? Star one to unmute. We kind of lost you there. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I was mm-hmm. talking. I thought it was unmuted. Right. Okay. So the then it was. The nature of God. Yes, yes. The nature of God. Yes. Basically, what your feelings are, your relationship, and what you do maybe uh, to keep in conscious contact. Yes. Absolutely. Well, wonderful question. You know, I, I mentioned that I was brought up in, in the Jewish faith, and it didn't really work for me in Southern California. You know, I was one of maybe two or three Jewish kids in my class in uh, Southern California, and, and um, you know, I felt wholly different. And and so that concept, or at least that um, upbringing, kind of turned me off to God. And it was in OA that I reestablished my relationship with God. And remember, we could have our own conception of a higher power, and that's precisely what I have. You know, my perception of God is a wonderful perception, and it's mine. It's my perception. We're allowed to have that perception, right? And so essentially, um, I'll tell you a story. It was kind of fun. You know, I remember, you know, I was at goal weight, and I was just feeling great. And of all places, and this is, I know it's antithetical to uh, addiction and recovery, but I was in Las Vegas, <laughs> of all places. Okay, and I was there for a wedding, and I happened to be at a roulette table, and and um, I remember putting a lot of money on one number, and, and I remember having this feeling. It was this feeling of thank you, thank you, God, 
for giving me another chance at recovery or another chance at life. I'm sorry, because I had lost the weight. I was feeling good. I was feeling good in my skin. And I just remember this feeling. And essentially the number hit. And I remember this warm feeling of warmth before the number came. And I was amazed. You know, they hit the big number, got one all this money. And I remember leaving the money on that number and it hit again twice and the and I remember the roulette guy looked at me very strangely and I took the money and I remember going up to my room and I always carry my big book with me and I made a call to my sponsor and I said, Hey, this just happened. I think I had a communication with God. And he said, you know, Len, don't worry about it. Just, you know, you know, you probably did, but that's okay. Don't freak out and you know, he calmed me down a little bit. And my higher power has a sense of humor. So I decided to go down to the roulette table a couple hours later and try to pull one over on God. I was, you know, oh, I feel so wonderful in recovery and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, I lost all my money, right? And I had to laugh because my higher power has a sense of humor. He, you know, he threw me a bone. He threw me a token. He threw me an acknowledgement of his existence at the roulette table because I said thank you for the first time. And he said, you're welcome. And But when I tried to pull one over on him, he says, yeah, I know what you're doing. You know, you're not going to get away with that. So my conception of God, you know, he's a good old dude, G-O-D, good old dude. You know, it's a different conception, perhaps, than the religion that I was brought up in. But you know what? That's my conception, and it works for me. And remember, I could change that higher power anytime I want. That's what the book says. So, yeah, hope that helps. Thank you, Lisa B., for the question. Leon B., your turn. Good morning, Leo. Good morning, Lynn. Uh, thank you so much for your share. Um, I thought I was the only person on the earth that tried Optifast for weight loss. Um, my question is, if you could um, sort of touch on, it kind of touches on Lisa B's question. Um, I was wondering if you could um, share what your Step 11 looks like today. Okay, so if I, if I got that correctly, you said, what does my step 11 look like? And so prayer meditation, yeah, every day, pray it, and I get on my knees. It's first thing in the morning, and every single morning, you know, I get to that, you know, ask God, what is his will for me every day? And I meditate, and I go through a meditative process, which is very um, prescriptive. It's very easy. It's, you know, deep breathing close my eyes and I have an imagination of the seashore. I'm sure everyone has done this meditation. And I try, you know, I get rid of all those resentments and things that happen during my day. Just let the ocean waves, you know, you write it out in your mind, you know, what those resentments might be or what those things that are hanging over you. And you let the water come over the, the um, you know, those things that you write in the sand and you come into this very meditative place. And hopefully during that process, you you hear a voice, you hear direction. And, you know, it, when I start my day off like that, what it does is it gives me, at least it calms me in a, in a great way. That's number one. Number two, there I listen for that tiny voice of direction. Where am I supposed to go today? What am I supposed to do? What does God want for me today? And that's the direction, the trajectory that I head in. And hopefully, if I keep my channel clear, you know, that channel to God clear, 
I will stay in that direction. Now, remember, things will try to throw me off that path and during the day, you know, so those 10-step uh, reasons come up, you know, where I have to pause and, you know, realize, you know, watch for all day long those fears, resentments, you know, all those things that might come up during a day uh, and watch for them, right? Watch for them so that um, I don't get thrown off track. And, you know, I don't do this thing perfectly. No one's perfect except for God. And But I'd like to head in the direction of perfection. I'll never reach it. You know, no one ever reaches it, but I want to head in that trajectory. And that's what I do. That's how it starts. You know, the day starts in that that way so that it gives me at least a trajectory toward uh, being God-centered. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Leon, for the question. Scott, you're up. Star one ton mute. Thank you so much, Len. I was just it was delightful and wonderful and inspiring, et cetera. Um, continue to watch for selfishness. Continue to watch for selfishness. How do you watch for selfishness? This has baffled me and I just don't if you could talk about that, please. Absolutely. What a great question, Scott. Well, first of all, the book is rife. You know, when the when the big book, when Bill and Bob, you know, what I believe actually just transcribed what God kind of, you know, faxed down from heaven <laughs> to Bill and Bob. I don't think they were able to write such a wonderful manuscript without God inspiration. Um, the big book re- reminds us over and over and over that our whole disease really revolves around selfishness. In fact, it's stated every, every, it seems like in every chapter, there's always something about selfishness. And this idea of getting away from selfishness, in other words, you know, these, um, you know, self-centered and self, uh, uh, when, when we're in self, what we're doing is we're what? We're edging God out for the most part. When we're thinking about our little plans in life, our little issues that might come up, you know, and, and all of a sudden they become this big issue, right, uh, in life. Um, we have to remember that, you know, that, um, that this is the root of our problem. The root of our problem really is selfishness, right? If, if we continue to just obsess on self and think about and get preoccupied with self, what happens is um, we lose interest in others. As a result, you know, you can't be selfish and then have an interest in others. So just by default, we are, um, you know, if we're in selfishness, we're not thinking of others. And so what happens is, we, you know, when we're selfish, a lot of times we might get, the, you know, into dishonesty. We might become frightened, uh, fear of the future, right? We probably get irritable and inconsiderate. You know, our pride gets uh, agitated. Our, we might get greedy or lustful and anger. You know, the seven deadly sins. We might become intolerant or full of resentment or hate. And, and what happens is when we are, you know, if we live in selfishness, we really are not really living um, uh, the way the big book wants us to live, which is really thought of others, you know, constant thought of others, selfishness and self-will, and it could really just derail our program completely, you know, uh, 
you know, I have so many different issues, you know, in my life, and, and I'm okay with them today because I have programs. Now, why is that? Well, you know, when I think about some of the problems, and, and sometimes I don't understand why God puts certain things in my life, uh, because they seem like problems, but I look at God as sort of like a GPS, and he knows that I'm supposed to experience these very things at this very moment. And it may not be what I want for myself at this very moment. However, in retrospect and looking back at it, a lot of times I see why I was put through it. So the thing is, is that I have to have the faith that God has my back. And and the thing is, while I might, you know, um, talk about God and my relationship with God, I also have to have the faith to believe that everything that is happening in my life is there for a reason and that God wants me to experience whatever is happening, even if it seems like it's not supposed to happen. You know, I got a divorce many years ago, and I remember at the time of my divorce, my wife left me, and, you know, she was cheating on it with someone else, and, and then she left. And I remember that moment, and I was not in recovery, by the way, um, you know, I had a 357 in my mouth. I was, you know, I was depressed, and I was upset, and I was begging her to come back. And in retrospect, that was the best thing that could have happened to me, right? I had, you know, and I didn't have the faith because I, I wasn't in recovery because I was begging her to come back. Well, you know what? I look back on that and God was looking out for me. You know, um, I was full of selfishness then, but now today I have the faith to realize that what happens to me, even though it may not seem like it's good, it is good. God knows that it's supposed to happen to me, and I have the faith to believe that it's going to be okay, that he has my back, and I hope that helps. Thank you so much. Thank You're you, welcome. Scott. Larry Kay, your turn. Hi, Larry. Thank you for your service. And Lynn. Oh. Hi, Lynn. Hey, Larry. Thank you. <laughs> hi. Um, thank you so much. Good, good, good. Thank you so much for your, <clears throat> for your uh, service and your presentation this morning. So many beautiful, wonderful things, and it made me think, I'm going to state something, and then there's a question here. Um, you strike me as a, um, an introspective person, and perhaps some, there's some patience in there, and, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that there probably, before you came to program, there was, um, you might have been an introspective person, and um, certainly had the ability to, to analyze, maybe, maybe you'll tell me otherwise, but but I'm making a presumption and there's some, you know, I hear a piece and obviously you've been changed and transformed. So now to the question, you know, I see a lot of people, perhaps you do too, Len, that, um, that may have, uh, may be quite virtuous. They may, they may have good philosophies of living and, um, and peace and introspection and analysis and synthesis and all these abilities are things they have. And yet for whatever reason, they're not recovering. And um, at least they haven't had an effective spiritual awakening sufficient to begin to, to, to one, remove that obsession and, and, and then allow for the unfolding of this change where we're brought into alignment with this higher power. So, so based on that, I wonder, the question is, if you can speak to some of that um, in your experience, Len, I would appreciate that. If that oh, makes thank sense. You, Zach. Oh, it does. It makes absolute sense. And absolutely, if you want to talk about someone who's introspective, 
you know, I, you know, all those self-help books and all the other things that I've read, you know, uh, throughout the years, trying to understand who I am, you know, and, and boy, did I do a lot of self-analysis and a lot of introspection. And yes, I know a lot of people who, who are highly educated and highly introspective and have an amazing amount of self-knowledge and yet they're struggling in program. And what does it really come down to or what has my experience been with a lot of them? In fact, I, I hate saying this, uh, it, it's a horrible thing, but a lot of my sponsees, the ones who were so intelligent and so introspective, they had the hardest time in actually letting go of what? Control of this idea of allowing the you know, beautiful program to unfold in their lives. They still wanted to hold on and direct their program and not be willing and open-minded to this. This is what I found, you know, I mean, I, when I think about my life and I played hit and run with success my entire life, you know, I, you know, multiple degrees, you know, I made a lot of money, uh, you know, millionaire many times over all these things. And so when you have these kinds of things happen in your life, what happens is you start to believe that you can control your destiny. Well, one of the things that I learned is you can't control really any of the – none of the outcomes I can control. This was a hard lesson for someone who's played hit and run with success. Um, you know, when you hit that block wall and you just cannot achieve that one goal that you want to achieve, wherein God won't allow you to achieve it, then you get humbled and you get frustrated and you get back into addiction. Well, a lot of my very bright folks who I sponsor uh, who have trouble, a lot of times what happens is they're not willing to concede that God really is in control of outcomes. You know, we could prepare all we want for a certain goal, but if God doesn't want us to have it, we ain't going to get it. No way. You know, God will definitely keep us from getting that goal. And I've come to that understanding. It took a lot of beating down of my self-will and my idea that I could control things and outcomes. And the fact is I can't control people, places, things. I know that. And I know that the only thing I can control is how I react to life. That's the only thing I can control. And once I got that, a uh, program became easier, you know, once I went with the flow. So I hope that helps, Larry. It does. Thank you, Len. You're very welcome. Thank you, Larry. Suri C. Star one to unmute to pose your question, please. Hi, thank you so much, um, Larry Glenn. Um, sorry, um, Leah. And I just, first of all, um, yeah, speaking about powerlessness. Um, so I, I kind of feel like, um, in terms of control, you know, you mentioned it a number of times. Um, you know, I, I went to a whole lecture series by a guy who runs, like, the Center for Anxiety, and he said one of the difficulties and why we live in an era of anxiety is because um, because of our need for control. And step one, I'm powerless over food, and my life has become a manager. I, I, I have a very hard time. I'm a very introspective person. So how did you let go of that control? How, like, how, how do you balance... Um, you know, the control aspect and, and, and recognizing and, and sort of being okay with the powerlessness. I think that that's my, you know, I, I almost feel like sometimes, 
if a person has a lot of time on their hands, then they can do this program well. Um, but as a single full-time working mom, trying to juggle put, figuring out how to work this program, um, it, it, it seems like I'm, I, I, yeah. So you're speaking about choice, powerlessness, um, how do you balance it all? How do you, how do you let go when um, there's so much involved? And um, I'm struggling with the food in general right now. So in terms of the choice um, and, and choosing and powerlessness, like I just any words of encouragement, um, I would appreciate just figuring out that balance. I would be grateful. Thank you. What a wonderful question. Thank you so much for asking that. I, I totally get what you're saying. I totally understand it. When I, you know, I first entered the program, I told you, you know, for three years, didn't get anything. I mean, I, I languished. I didn't lose one pound. I mean, the reason I stuck with it, quite honestly, is I'm stubborn. You know, I'm a stubborn guy who loves control, right? Well, I was told that this was the last house on the block, and so I stuck with it and finally heard something that actually triggered, you know, uh, you know, actually willingness to work a big book program. But even in that fellowship, even the program where I lost half my body weight, I still wasn't really working the program because why? I still wanted to control certain aspects. And I have to admit that while every person that was in that meeting had great intentions and my sponsor who had great intentions, intentions, he didn't fully understand how the steps worked in a real rigorous way. And I think, you know, setting your your program on a firm foundation is so critical. We have to come to a conclusion that our life is out of out of control, right? That we are powerless. And the answer, the answer that was staring at me all that time, reading the big book over and over and over again and hearing it in meetings in those big book meetings, the, the, the one that has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. He has all the power. I was powerless because I really didn't have the faith that, that God would do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I never had that faith. I never wanted to let go. I always wanted to have control over everything, including the food. Remember when the food got really crazy, you know, when I, when I lost the weight, but then it, my, my physical recovery went away because I was starting to pull back control, thinking I could do it. What was I doing? I was edging God out. Ego, ego, E-G-O, ego, edging God out. I was trying to take control back take control back. I wasn't working the program. I wasn't allowing the program to work for me. I didn't have the faith to believe that God could do for me what I could not do for myself. And this is where I ran into all kinds of problems until I decided to work this program rigorously. And that's exactly what happened. I was exactly the same way. You know, I wanted, I didn't want to relinquish control. Are you kidding? I mean, this is how I was brought up. I was brought up by someone who was self-made and who told me I couldn't have emotions and control yourself and all those things, right? And, um, you know, that was my old programming. So I had to eliminate that old programming. You know, I had to format C for all you computer geeks out there and start afresh with a brand new uh, disk, right, hard drive, and reprogram it 
and understand that I don't have control over anything except for how I react to life. And as long as I keep that in the forefront of my mind and I keep God in my mind and you in my life and the fellowship in my life, what happens is then I have a better chance at staying in recovery. Never a guarantee, but it's a chance that today I will stay in recovery. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Suri C., for your question. Ginny R., your turn, star one to unmute. Hi. Thanks, Len, so much for sharing your um, journey with all of us this morning. Um, I hope my question's not really off topic here, and it's pretty quick. I'm relatively new, five months in a way, and um, I'm wondering... How do you pick a sponsor? Because I'm realizing that everybody does it so differently. And some people don't mention the steps. Some people do. So so that's my question. What what should I look for when I'm choosing a sponsor? And that's oh, my question. Thank you. What a, well, thank you so much. What a wonderful, you know, you're going to get me on my soapbox. <laughs> because, boy, do I have opinions about this. Um, I'll tell you. You know, stick, number one, stick with this fellowship vision for you. This is what I think will help OA uh, so much. And it is helping OA so much. My dear friend Harlan says it all the time. And to, to pick a sponsor is so critical. Listen, you know, there's everyone, I would say, in OA is very well-meaning. I, I mean, everyone, all, everyone in the fellowship, whether they're working a program or not, they want to help you. Okay. However, however, and a big however, if they are not working a program that addresses the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical, and in my case, working through the big book only, this is my lens opinion, but for a vision for you, I think we're all aligned on this. What happens is the message will be diluted by other writings and readings and other meetings. Like I told you, I was in a meeting that talked that all they did was play spiritual tapes. They played a tape for God's sakes and they called that a big book meeting or not. I'm in an OA meeting. I'm sorry. I went to a meeting that was held in a pancake house where people were eating pancakes and here they're, you know, mouths are full of pancakes and syrup and they're thinking they're in recovery. So even though they're well-meaning, they didn't know. So basically you look for a sponsor for someone who has what you want. Are they, you know, well-adjusted? Are they calm? Are they spiritually grounded? Are they emotionally grounded? Do they have physical recovery that you want? Do they look healthy? Do they talk healthy? And then are they working a program out of the big book? That's my criteria for a sponsor. I will only work with sponsors who are big book sponsors and and folks who have you know some gray hair so to speak in program meaning they've been around the block maybe they've been through some relapses like me and now are back on track you know i mean it, it, so that's what i look for i look for someone who has what i want and in my case big book only and, and who's been around uh, around the block so to speak <laughs> in program so thanks thanks for the question great question Yes, thank you, Ginny R., for the question. Our final question for the morning comes from Deborah M. Deborah M., star one to unmute. Hi, this is Deborah M. 
Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, wonderful meeting. You had spoken about emotions, how that was so much um, something you had to process. And you also mentioned selfishness at the core. Could you tell me your process when you realize that there is emotions build up? And maybe I watch too much TV and you go to the, that place of running, but sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. How do you recognize that? And then even to do a 10 step, um, sometimes it takes me a long time to realize, okay, what's really going on here? But in the meantime, can you tell me the process that you would have for that? Thank you. Yeah, great question. You know, the root, the, what I call the engine of, uh, of addiction is really rooted in emotion. And in fact, the fact is, is that um, I was taught that emotion was bad. And my dear friend, I keep on bringing up Harlan because he's my dear friend and I think he's okay with it. Basically, um, you know, there's a word that describes people who experience emotion and that word is human being. You know, it's human to have emotion. I didn't know that. I, that was beaten out of me. You know, I told you that my mom, you know, when I came to her crying, you know, and I was bloodied, um, I ran to her for some soothing. And what I got was the back of her hand. She slapped me and said, I'll give you a reason to cry. So my issue, one of the big issues was self-soothing. Am I good at self-soothing? And the fact is, is that I wasn't. I, in fact, it set me on a trajectory early on of not of having maladaptive ways of soothing myself. In other words, I wasn't allowed to soothe myself. I, I remember when I told you the story of my wife leaving me for another person and, you know, she was cheating on me. And I remember coming to my mom. I don't know why I did it. You know, insanity is doing the same behavior and expecting different results. I went to my mom, of all people, expecting some sympathy. And she was consistent. She said, Len, you have one day to process your emotions regarding your wife leaving you. You have one day and then you are to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and not think about it again. That's how my mom dealt with emotion. She didn't. She didn't deal with emotion. And so that sent me on a bad trajectory. That was one of the, you know, problems that I had really. And that engine was fed, that uh, of addiction was fed because I also learned that mom dealt with that kind or any emotion by eating. She ate compulsively, and I just mimicked her behavior. So from an early age, I knew that emotion was bad, not supposed to have it, and but if you kind of experience it, you're supposed to run to food, run to ice cream. And that's what I did, and that's what you know. You don't get 425 pounds by eating normally, and and I ate over emotion. Well, so how do I recognize when I'm in that state? It's agitation. It's not feeling right. You know, you ask, how do I figure out when I need to do a 10 step? It's when something is not sitting right with me. I'm feeling a little upset. I'm feeling a little angry. I'm feeling, you know, a little resentful. And I said, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is what I have to watch for. This is what the book tells me. Watch for these feelings. And I have to watch for that every day because if you drive on the 405 freeway in Southern California, you're going to be agitated. I could guarantee you 24 seven. I'm <laughs> so you, what you do is you watch for that. You watch for these feelings, you watch for resentment, fear, dishonesty, selfishness, right? And that's when you have to take action. That's when you do that 10 step, because listen, I do probably between 10 and 15, 10 steps a day. 
I have to in order to stay sane, to stay in program, right? And I do that process that I mentioned before. You know, you you pause when agitated, you do the four columns, you call your sponsor, you pray, you make amends, and then you help someone else. You have to do this to, because you could either do that or you could run to food, right? You have a choice. You always have a choice. Remember, that's your will. You could choose to do program or you could choose to do recovery, and I choose to do recovery. And when, when you start doing that more often than not, the old compulsion to run to food actually starts dissipating. Okay. And so that's been my experience. But that neural pathway of recovery is getting bigger, right? That neural pathway of addiction is still there. It might have some dust on that road, right? But it's still there. And remember, I could choose that road, which I don't want to do. But because I'm choosing recovery over and over again, that's becoming my new default habit. So doing a 10-step is my new default as opposed to the old default, which was to run to addiction. Okay. So I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who posed questions this morning. Greatly appreciate that. And, of course, thank you, Len, so very much for offering all that you gave us this morning a very rich and powerful presentation full of hope and possibility. Thank you. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.